the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Friday and final installment of The Dan Proft Show. Yes, final installment. I'll uh, explain that at the end of the show, but this will be... Uh, my last program. I'll continue to do a morning show in Chicago uh, on the Salem station there, AM 560, if you want to catch me there, but uh, no longer the Dan Prof show. Uh, so uh, thank you for the ride. And uh, we got one more here, and I'll have some closing thoughts on the program over the last 14 months at the end of today's edition. Uh, let's get right to it. And uh, that means getting back to New York State. And Governor Party nips there. The plot continues to thicken. His position continues to worsen on both fronts, both with respect to the nursing home scandal, as well as the allegations of sexual harassment uh, after, on the latter score, Charlotte Bennett, one of the governor's accusers, sitting down to do an interview with CBS's Nora O'Donnell. We'll get to her comments momentarily, but I did want to touch upon the Wall Street Journal story that broke last night that the governor's aides top advisors, successfully pushed state health officials to strip a public report of data showing that more nursing home residents had died of COVID-19 than the administration had acknowledged. The July report, which examined the factors that led to the spread of the virus in nursing homes, focused only on residents who died inside the long-term care facilities, leaving out those who had died in hospitals after becoming sick in nursing homes. As a result, the significant undercounting. And so this was a purposeful fraud that was committed. And you can be sure that, I mean, I can't prove this, but I suspect it will turn out. How about that? That uh, this was not uh, just initiative that was taken by Cuomo's top advisors. This was initiative that was taken at the behest of said nipple studs. Yeah. Um, And uh, a reckoning. A reckoning on this because this is the real scandal. And as we'll speak with George, uh, with John Nolte from Breitbart a little bit later in the program, uh, this is not limited to Andrew Cuomo. There are other governors, and it was reported back last year, who gave the same orders and uh, th- th- with respect to returning infected nursing home patients to nursing homes. And uh, there needs to be a circling back to those governors, too, on the other score. We'll get to that topic with John Nolte. On the other score, Miss Bennett, Charlotte Bennett, 25-year-old executive assistant of Andrew Cuomo's, formerly. And uh, remember, Andrew Cuomo said that uh, in his second attempt at an apology, which turned out to be a non-apology, that he never inappropriately touched anyone that he never propositioned anyone. I'm sure he'll also say when he's forced to address the nursing home matter, he never inappropriately touched any report either. Well, 
uh, Charlotte Bennett wasn't buying his non-apology apology. In fact, she characterized it uh, very nicely. I did. It's not an apology. It's not an issue of my feelings. It's an issue of his actions. The fact is that he was sexually harassing me, and he has not apologized for sexually harassing me. And he can't even use my name. Uh, He said he never propositioned anyone. That's what uh, Nipple Rings Gambino said. Uh, Charlotte Bennett says otherwise unequivocally. Governor Cuomo said that he has never propositioned anybody. Do you believe that he was propositioning you? Yes. For what? Sex. Pretty straightforward. If you haven't seen it, you should check out her interview. I find her quite credible, actually, and we'll get into the specifics, specific dates where the relationship between the two soured after it was professional, and then it became something where Andrew Cuomo, well, it became, uh, there was a desire on behalf of the governor to make it something other than professional. And um, her perspective, Ms. Bennett's, on uh, Cuomo's, change in conduct. The pandemic was obviously stressful for all of us, and he was on TV nearly every day talking about it. Make that gown look good. So you think all this national attention may have emboldened him? Absolutely. I think he felt like he was untouchable in a lot of ways. More media reckoning that's due, and I'll get to that as well. Media reckoning due in terms of the governors they're not covering yet as the feeding frenzy continues with respect to Cuomo, as well as uh, the impact of their canonization of him on what he thought he could get away with, per what Charlotte Bennett had to say. There's something else, too, and this is perhaps the most disturbing thing that she said, as far as I'm concerned. This was um, uh, occurred on May 15th of last year, or at least that was a moment where I guess it reached enough of a point where Uh, she started to feel uncomfortable. What he would repeat back to her, apparently something that she had told him in confidence, and then he repeated it back. So he goes, you were raped. You were raped. You were raped and abused and assaulted. And then on June 15th, Another key encounter happened on June 5th, when Bennett says she was called into Cuomo's office to take dictation, and he told her to turn off the tape recorder. And then he explains at that point that he is looking for a girlfriend. He's lonely. He's tired. You've just finished dictation, and the governor is telling you he's lonely and looking for a relationship. Yes. He asked if I had trouble enjoying being with someone because of my trauma. The governor asked me if I was sensitive to intimacy. In his office? Yes. During the workday. So May 15th and then June 5th, just to make sure we get the dates right, as you heard, very specific. And um, that, that she tells him something in confidence, whether that was a good idea or not, she did her boss and then he repeats it back to her that there's something just very dark and weird about that why you would repeat back to someone this trauma that they had confided in you about and uh you know talked a bit a bit about this on the morning show i do in chicago and get female perspectives on this and and 
the perspective was he's trying to break her down um, and then get to whether or not she was uh, open to a relationship. And make no mistake about it, that's what he was doing. He asked me if age difference mattered. He also explained that he was fine with anyone over 22. And how old are you? 25. What were you thinking as he's asking you these questions? I thought, he's trying to sleep with me. The governor's trying to sleep with me. And I'm deeply uncomfortable. And I have to get out of this room as soon as possible. And when comes the media reckoning for not only running interference for this sociopath, but turning him into an International Emmy Award winner and best-selling author and saint of the COVID-19 response. Uh, don't uh, take my perspective on it because right, I'm just a, a conservative, so of course I'm disinclined to be charitable to Hansi Anzi Cuomo. How about Ross Barkin over at the Daily Beast, left-wing outlet? Cuomo was always New York's bad guy. Here's why he was finally exposed. And the why is somewhat interesting. Um, politics surrounding it. There's various theories. We've talked about some of them earlier in the week. Um, that's less interesting to me than a focus on making sure that outlets and individuals in the press corps are chastened, disciplined, that there's a reckoning there. This is um, what uh, Mr. Barkin had to say. There's an endemic in contemporary journalism that has been fully exposed by Cuomo debacles. Reporters crave narratives. They seek to arrange facts in such a way that stories can be told. They are taught to do this in journalism schools. Editors push them there, and Twitter seals the deal. In literature, characters have foils. In journalism, which too often takes its cues from the same place, this is also true. If Trump was darkness, someone had to be light. And it was decided that the tough-talking governor from New York who mastered the most rudimentary of presentation techniques, the PowerPoint, must be cast in that role. Yeah, I think that's a, a fair summary of what happened. Uh, he uh, goes on to say, Cuomo was anointed and he happily, greedily played the part. The facts were ignored, dismissed, even hidden. Mass death meant mass fame. Now we're beyond that, finally. And the same e media apparatus that gave us Cuomo the COVID conqueror has decided to amplify all that is wrong with him and introduce Cuomo the consummate creep. It should have happened a lot sooner, right? And there should be consequences for those who prevented it from happening a lot sooner. Professional, at minimum. This is Dan Prof. I'm coming home, baby. Coming home, baby, now. You know I'm waiting for you. I'm coming home now real soon. You've been gone. Coming home, baby, now. You don't know what I'm going through. I'm coming home, I know I'm overdue. Since you went away. Expect me anything. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. We're pleased now to be joined by United States Senator from Tennessee, Republican, Marsha Blackburn. Senator Blackburn, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, good to be with you. Thank you. 
I know your time is limited, so let's uh, cover a couple of the uh, particularly salient topics uh, you're facing and the country is facing, starting with uh, the $2 trillion in new funny money that the Biden administration wants to spend. Where does that stand in the Senate? What uh, do you see as the likely outcome from that uh, from that legislative push? We are currently debating it. Uh, there will be a voterama, as it is called, uh, today, probably go late into the night. And uh, if we can find one good Democrat to side with us, we could stop the bill in total. And we're going to have a series of amendments that would reduce the spending that is in the bill. I'm going to have one that would deal with where the checks go to uh, and making certain that they're going to people who have lost their job. You know, Dan, the thing that is so egregious is only 9% of this $2 trillion bill actually goes to COVID-related causes. Only 1% goes to vaccines themselves. And the rest of it is a wish list for the Democrats of blue state bailouts, loan forgiveness for certain groups of people, uh, money for arts, money for humanities, money for infrastructure and transportation. So what the left is doing is two very specific things. They're trying to prefund their agenda of moving to the left their socialist-type agenda. And the other thing is it's a payoff for some of these unions and groups that supported them in the presidential election. Well, one of the more noxious elements, too, that we discussed a bit earlier in the week is this provision that would pay federal workers to stay home and be with their children if their children are not in school, even uh, if they're only in school part-time. So the one hand, you have all these families having to make adjustments because of teachers' unions that are preventing kids from going back to school, Democrat uh, financiers, the teachers' unions. And on the other hand, then taxpayers are going to fund federal workers to stay home because of their allies, the teachers' unions, keeping their kids at home. Well, and that is right. See, and this deals with all of these counties that are in Virginia and Maryland that are around Washington, D.C., where federal workers live, and the teachers' unions are not going back to class. And there are a lot of people that don't even think they're planning to go back in the fall. So what they're doing is paying $1,400 a week for federal employees to stay home to keep their children while their children cannot go to school. Now, while they're doing that, they're not working from home. They're not doing business their job from home, they are basically on paid vacation from their federal government job. And and, and then another provision that's particularly concerning in terms of the precedent-setting nature of it, uh, Andy Biggs uh, wrote about this in the journal earlier this week, bailing out multi-state employer pension funds for you know, private sector trade unions, um, as, for example, the Central States Pension Fund, and that's to sort of set up, he argues, and I agree with him, ultimately a bailout of public sector pension funds by the federal government when they capsize in places like Illinois. Well, that is right, and that's the $350 billion. See, out of that, $50 billion would go to New York, Schumer's home, $27 billion would go to California, Pelosi's home. And by the way, for the first time in a long time, California has a surplus in their state budget this year. 
$27 billion to them. See, what they're doing is bailing out these pension funds and paying off the debt. You know, most states have a um, balanced budget amendment, so they don't run a deficit. So this bill is there. It is for these states like New Jersey and New York and Chicago, Illinois, and uh, California, and they're going to bail out these blue cities and states. And it is people from states like Tennessee that are going to be paying for this. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, with respect to the border security, I, w- I wanted to raise this issue with you as well. This report that came out uh, this week, a uh, domestic policy advisor within the Biden administration, uh, the report suggesting that you can expect 117,000 plus unaccompanied minors to show up on the southern border this year. And this against the backdrop of a, another report this week that several hundred, if not more, people that tried to come into this country illegally were released into this country. They came through the Del Rio sector in Texas and more than a hundred had tested positive for COVID. So we're talking about this COVID relief. We're talking about uh, trying to, you know, make sure people practice all these protocols to stop the spread and so on and so forth. And then we're letting people come into this country illegally, test positive for COVID and we're releasing them into this country. That's right. And see, you have to bear in mind what they're doing. They're putting them on a plane or a bus and sending them to different communities around the country. Uh, And thereby, uh, you've got the COVID spread that is taking place from these illegal entrants that are presenting themselves at the southern border. And, uh, you know, thinking about this uh, on a, a, a global basis here, um, what is going to be the response to, because, of course, the other play that Democrats want is path to citizenship so they can be voters and and the Democrats can try and make them their constituents. What is the response going to be from Republicans in the Senate to uh, uh, H.R. 1, which seeks to federalize elections and make every election going forward like the 2020 election? From Republicans in the Senate, it is going to be to stop this bill. It is clearly unconstitutional. It is a power grab of the left and of the House Democrats, and we know that the Constitution gives the responsibility for setting time, place, and manner of elections to the state legislatures. So this would centralize it. It would move all that responsibility to Washington, D.C. It would institutionalize mail-out ballots for just because they can. It would change signature verification. It would change voter ID laws. And it would, the Democrats feel that doing this would give them a permanent majority. Uh, how optimistic are you that uh, Republicans, and maybe if you can peel off a Democrat who are going to be able to kill the, the $2 trillion spend, this uh, election bill, the, the, uh, the defund police bill that passed the House too, uh, are, are those going to be able to be stopped, do you believe? We certainly hope they're going to be able to be stopped. We're always looking for one good Democrat that wants to vote with the Republicans. It's Senate. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I well, right. We got, we got that. No. But, 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 but for, for the, uh, do, do you worry at all about um, uh, making these simple majority votes rather than uh, the 60 to get it to, uh, to a, a Senate vote? Well, what we're going to do is just continue to work to, uh, on HR1 to keep it from going to the floor. 
and we'll we're going to keep pushing. We will absolutely keep pushing to stop this really bad bill and to stop the defund the police legislation, stop the $2 trillion spend. She is Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican from Tennessee. Senator Blackburn, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to be with you. Thank you. Take care. I've been in the wrong place, but it must have been the right time. I've been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong song. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. I'm sure I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again. So a few years ago in Chicago when he was doing his uh, tour of uh, screenings of uh, Blazing Saddles, Mel Brooks, I went to see uh, Mel Brooks. He would, the movie would be screened, so everybody watched the movie, and then Mel Brooks would come on stage and answer questions for about an hour. And this is, you know, just a few years ago. He's, I think he was 91 at the time. And it was such a good time because Blazing Saddles is such a classic comedy and because Mel Brooks is just so wildly sharp. I mean, it was basically an hour, not really of asking, uh, taking questions, but more just using questions as the opportunity to riff a few stories uh, for uh, five minutes at a time. I mean, it was just such a fun time. And he's such a, I mean, a great artist, Mel Brooks. And of course, the first question he gets asked, and this is, you know, three years ago, think what it would be today. I don't even know if he could ask the question uh, or anybody would be allowed to attend. And I don't mean because of COVID-19 related uh, restrictions. He was asked three years ago or so, could you make the movie today? And he immediately said no. Three years later, rough, roughly speaking, I think the question would be, could you screen the movie you did make today? And I think the answer would probably be no. For more on the death of comedy, particularly if you have a perspective that is not consistent with the established orthodoxy of the identitarian culture, we're pleased to be joined by Christian Toto. You can get all of his work at Hollywood in Toto. That's T-O-T-O dot com, Hollywood in Toto. Also, this piece I'm referencing with respect to conservative comedians that are particularly being targeted by the big tech censors. Uh, you find this piece at realclearinvestigations.com, and I'll tweet it out at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show as well. Christian, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. And, you know, I want to just say right away that it isn't just conservative comedy or jokes. Right. Uh, one of the main people in my piece is Ryan Long, who's a very funny fellow from Canada, moved to New York recently. And a lot of his stuff is really just poking back at woke culture. And that really is not technically left or right. And it's also not technically political. But he's facing some big tech suppression. And I, I think that's important to say it's not just a left right thing. It's more, I think what you mentioned, sort of the orthodoxy. What's the, what is the accepted wisdom that we need to listen to? And what are the jokes we can tell? It's, it's really amazing. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I'm especially conservative, certainly not limited to it. I mean, I wouldn't call Mel Brooks. I, I don't think he's a conservative. I have no idea, actually, but I, I, I would suspect he isn't. But, I mean, do you agree with me that it, forget forget remaking Blazing Saddles or making it today? Could, could he even screen the movie he did make today? You know, I think Mel Brooks is kind of grandfathered in in the woke culture mindset. Dr. So Seuss isn't. Yeah, that's, no, that's true. But Mel's still here. He's been such a wonderful, yeah. funny, upbeat presence. And I think, and I also think that conservatives for years have been saying Blazing Saddles couldn't exist today. And of course, Mel Brooks also, you know, confirms that. But so I think there is some self-awareness on, on the hard left that 
gosh, maybe we don't want to target that film. We'll target everything else, and maybe we'll get there eventually. So I'm, right. I'm not 100% sure. But the bottom line is that they couldn't make it today. You couldn't, you know, the movie makes fun of racism. I mean, that's of course. one of the key driving elements. So you can't make a movie making fun of racism if to get to those jokes, you have to kind of go into uncomfortable territory. Just think of what that says. Well, right. I, I mean, and the fact that we're even having this discussion about whether or not you think you could, he could scream Blazing Saddles, Mel Brooks. Uh, um, and, and it also, you know, all you have to do is start attaching some some meaning to the positions that are being taken. But people are unwilling to do that. For example, so are you telling me Cleveland Little was a white supremacist? And Richard Pryor was, uh, I think, a co-writer yeah, Richard, on that film, too. Yeah, right, right. And Gene Wilder, of course, had this great career with Richard Pryor, collaborations with Richard Pryor, and so on and so forth. I mean, it's just absurd. Um, but but as you point out in your piece at realclearinvestigations.com on this, it's not just um, uh, it's it's not just in that form. It's also in written form, satirical writing. So The Onion, which is so popular, well, that, that survives. But Babylon B, which takes the same posture as The Onion of being satirical towards those in positions of authority. Well, they're being satirical when they're being satirical in the wrong directions. They get uh, put into Facebook jail. The Babylon Bee part of the story is really amazing because the site is very funny, very cutting edge. It's certainly right of center, but they've, they've been poking President Trump for quite some time now. But what's happening to their material, how the fact checkers are swooping in, how Facebook is putting them in, in Facebook jail time and time again, it is really amazing. And again, their crime is telling jokes that the mainstream comedy culture won't tell. And they're doing it quite well. They're, they're not hacks. This is very funny material. But they are, I mean, this, they've been uh, being hit by these various groups for years now. It isn't just the last six months. It's been going on for a while, and I fear it'll get worse. Uh, when we come back with Christian Toto, editor of HollywoodInToto.com, uh, I want to get his reaction to the, uh, this uh, monologue that uh, Bill Maher offered uh, against some of the censoriousness that we're describing. How important was it to uh, continue this conversation about uh, uh, the uh, social media crackdown, crackdown on culture, uh, generally speaking, by identitarians right after this? Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Christian Toto, editor of HollywoodandToto.com. Do check out his piece that we were talking about before the break. So this conservative, co- so this conservative comic goes on social media and dot 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 at RealClearInvestigations.com. As I said, I'll also tweet it out. Um, and, but, Christian, I want to get to this, this um, point about um, not just having to hew of the line, whether in comedy or any other artistic expression, but really the stifling of culture. It's not only it, it's, a, it's, it's oppressive and it's going to result in a culture that is that produces less great work. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, uh, you know, some comedians have talked about this. Ricky Gervais has been very strong on this issue. And uh, Bill Maher, you know, is a, a very progressive fellow. Uh, you know, that's very clear. But he is one of the few comedians, especially in late night TV, who's willing to kind of move away from his party and tell some real bigger truths. 
and he's done it on multiple levels at multiple times. But I think his warnings about cancel culture and what's happening in our society are, are very valuable. And I think he's often very eloquent when he says them. Well, I, although I, I would say, you know, some of it, I, I, I have to, to, to watch somebody like Bill Maher and say, well, you know, this, your sort of brand of nihilism generally and your qualifications, even with that monologue that was so celebrated from this past week, um, you know, you, you in part brought us here. I mean, I, he's, he's not, you know, he's, he sort of plays the free speech absolutist from time to time, but at this, uh, but, 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 but I, I'm not sure that there's sort of a consistent thread throughout, uh, you know, Bill Maher's philosophy about uh, art and individual expression. Well, I, I understand what you're saying, but I also will point to other late night show hosts, including Jimmy Kimmel, Seth Meyers and Stephen Colbert, who, after Dr. Seuss was partially canceled, they seemed giddy about it. In the case yeah. of Jimmy Kimmel, he's, his only fear was that this whole culture war argument could get President Trump to get Donald Trump back in the White House. That was his fear, not about the culture, not about expression, not about the love of reading that Dr. Seuss has, has given to countless kids. You know, so Bill, I have to give Bill Maher a lot of credit for kind of stepping off the progressive side of the aisle because I think in doing so, I think he opens himself up to significant criticism. And also, it, it's more, listen, what, you know, if, if, if a Ben Shapiro talks about this, it's, it's important, it's valuable. But when someone on the on the decidedly left of center aisle says it, I, I think he can reach other people. Yeah, that's fair, fair enough. Uh, now, the the other thing about Dr. Seuss, much like you were talking about, we were talking about before the break about Mel Brooks and Blazing Saddles. I mean, Dr. Seuss and the whole um, and, and so much of his work was about yeah, understanding differences and then not letting differences divide. So, I mean, you know, so much of his, his, his message to kids reading or being read his books was unifying and move beyond uh, innate characteristics rather than getting beset by them. Yeah, I agree completely. Also, you know, when this story kind of builds and builds like it is right now, what the mainstream media will do is say, uh, you know, offensive images removed or racist. And, and then, you kind of, what were the images? Were they that bad? Um, if they, maybe they were a little, I, I don't even know. And I, I read the news every day. Like it sort of just gets lost in the shuffle. And then we assume like a kind of a blanket assumption that everything that we're being told is exactly right. But in his heart of hearts, the stories you wrote didn't reflect that at all, at all. And also, you know, if, if they were really terrible, awful imagery, wouldn't we know this 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 20, I mean, why is it just now it's unacceptable? And then all of a sudden eBay is pulling the books. Yes. Amazon is. I mean, th there's something so incredibly creepy about this knee jerk decision. And, and it just, it does a disservice to, to Dr. Seuss. And, you know, I, I, listen, maybe some people, maybe a small group of people will say, you know what? That image is offensive, but that is a small group of people. Maybe another small group of people said, I love that image or I love that book or I can kind of look past it. Why do, Why are their voices? Why do they matter less? Well, right. I mean, the, 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 right, exactly. The subjective it's offensive um, is the basis for book burning parties. Uh, I, I, and and here, here's the thing. And you, you point this out with the Jimmy Kimmel example. Part of it is for conservatives or people who actually do believe in in the right to offend uh, w without uh, running afoul of First Amendment protections, 
I think you have a hard time. We have a hard time believing that this is an opinion that's actually shared by a lot of people. And yet Jimmy Kimmel sort of in a backdoor way, as you described, shares it. Uh, a uh, op-ed at the nation. Uh, I would not, could not read those books to the kids. An op-ed at Newsweek. No, Dr. Seuss wasn't canceled. Enough with the hysteria about cancel culture. I mean, there really is a movement. Maybe it is relatively small, but it's uh, it's comprised of people that are influential that have platforms to to push this. And I think you you know uh, laugh it off. We laugh it off uh, to our peril. I'm not laughing. I have to say, I really, yeah, I really am yeah. not. Um, it, it's, and you know, I think you're, you're hitting on an interesting point in theory, deep down, this should not be a conservative liberal argument. It should be about free speech. It should be about artistic expression. But I think that there are many people on the left who, who see people on the right embracing free expression and, 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 and defending art that may be kind of challenging. And, and I think they've turned it into a left to right mission. So the Ricky Gervaises of the world who are liberal comedians who are defending free speech, they're the exceptions. The Glenn Greenwalds and I think it's Matt Taibbi, journalists yeah. Who, yeah. who call out the rot in journalism, they're the exceptions. And I think, you know, for Jimmy Kimmel to look at that Dr. Seuss story and his only takeaway is, oh my gosh, it could hurt, help Trump. It's bizarre. It's such a bizarre reaction. That, that would be like 85th on my list of, of thoughts about Dr. Seuss books getting, you know, taken off the marketplace. But that's, that's where he is, and he's got a late-night show, and he knows he's a, a hardcore progressive, and he's got to speak to his tribe, and, and there you have it. He is Christian Toto, editor of Hollywood in Toto, T-O-T-O dot com, and uh, author of the piece we were discussing at realclearinvestigations.com. So this conservative comic goes on social media and dot, dot, dot. Christian Toto, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, the hand wringing from the left over the announcements by Texas and Mississippi that uh, the mass mandates would be no more. That uh, has roiled them. Neanderthal thinking. And Jen Psaki, his uh, room temperature spokesperson, did her best to uh, couch those in terms most favorable to Joe Biden, I guess. I, you know, you listen, you decide for yourself. Uh, the governor of Mississippi has responded to the president's comments yesterday, and he seems to have taken offense at some of the president's language. Uh, he says Mississippians don't need handlers. I just think we should trust Americans and not insult them. He's making an argument that this is really about personal liberty here. Does the president uh, have any second thoughts about the language that he used yesterday? And how does comparing someone to a Neanderthal help convince them to change course and get on board with your public health message? The behavior of a Neanderthal, just to be very clear, um, the behavior of. 
I'm not saying they're Neanderthals. I'm just saying they're behaving like Neanderthals. That's basically a distinction without a difference. Uh, Joy Reid over at MSNBC was a less nuanced, didn't uh, try that parsing. Uh, She actually came over the top of Neanderthal. Take a listen. It feels like nobody cares. And that's that's how many Texans, Mississippians, they're all feeling that way tonight. No, absolutely. I'm sure the doctors are exhausted. And, you know, Jason, there is a term called necropolitics, which is essentially the politics of who gets to live and who gets to die. And these states, what they have in common is that they have structures which say that black and brown lives matter less. And so all that matters is that the black and brown people right. get their behinds into the factory and make me my steaks, make me my stuff, get there and do my nails, work, get back to work now and do the things that I, the comfortable, affluent person, need. Necropolitics. If uh, the 16 states that either never had or do not currently have a mass mandate, they uh, say black and brown lives matter less because they're not mandating masks or maybe mandating two masks like Governor Newsom in California is doing now. Or Dr. Fauci thinks is a good idea if it's something you like. Yeah, okay. I mean, this is you want to have a serious discussion about science with somebody like Joy Reid? I mean, it's a fool's errand. What's the point? Uh, and, and there's something, too, on a serious note, d- dispensing with those clowns. The, the culture here. It's a sort of surprising statistic that uh, was put out yesterday by the National Safety Council. Here we go. Uh, 42,060 people estimated to have died in motor vehicle crashes in 2020. That's an 8% increase over 2019 in a year where people drove significantly less frequently because they were locked down. In fact, the increase in the rate of death is the highest estimated year-over-year jump the National Security Council has calculated since 1924. And their response? Urging President Joe Biden and Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg to commit to zero roadway deaths by 2050. Here we go again live in a world that is perfectly safe. It's, uh, it's, it goes back to one of my favorite observations from one of my favorite economists, Ludwig von Mises. He who wants to improve conditions must propagate a new mentality, not merely a new institution. New mentality is what needs to be propagated, particularly within these bureaucracies and uh, those who are addled, you know, have had their minds addled by said bureaucracies. This is Dan Proff. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. Please follow us at danpropshow.com and on social media at danpropshow. I'm inclined to be a uh, acolyte of Mark Twain and his observation that no man's life, liberty, or property are safe while the legislature's in session. But the suspension of uh, legislative session in D.C. by Nancy Pelosi because of a alleged threat from the president's men, as she terms them, That needs to be addressed straight away. Here's what Pelosi had to say on Wednesday. Supplemental is going to take more money to protect the Capitol in a way that enables people to come here, children to come and see our democracy in action, all of you to cover uh, what happens here safely, members to be comfortable that they are safe when they are here and not be uh, concerned about... uh, what happened last time, but that that just doesn't have a place 
in a democracy so that many more people can come here and do their jobs uh, and uh, the threat of um, of all the president's men out there uh, we have to we have to ensure with our security uh, that we are safe enough to do our job but not impeding I and mean, I live in San Francisco yeah we know uh, well, Richie McGinnis, the video director for the Daily Caller, dailycaller.com, he was on site yesterday in D.C., and he was uh, looking high and low for these uh, QAnon conspiracy theorists who are apparently uh, represent an existential threat to the republic, according to Pelosi. Here's what he found in conversations with National Guardsmen. Thanks for your service. Thank you. you guys see any of those QAnon folks around here today? It's been super quiet. It's more media than anybody else, huh? Well, thank you. You guys stay safe. At least it's a pretty beautiful day, right? It's always a beautiful day for martial law in D.C. with uh, leftists in charge. So uh, that was the story. The kicker to the story is uh, the recommendation by General Honore for a thousand more Capitol Police officers to protect the political ruling class. So a thousand more Capitol Police officers to protect D.C. politicians. Meanwhile, those same D.C. politicians on the left want to defund the police for the hoi polloi out there outside the Beltway. Isn't that interesting? For more on this topic, we're uh, pleased to be joined by our old friend who's got a new title. Uh, our old friend, of course, is Burgess Owens. He is a Super Bowl champion, former NFLer, author of Why I Stand from Freedom to the Killing Fields of Socialism and... You may call him now the Honorable Burgess Owens. He is a congressman from Utah's 4th. Burgess, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. So what about uh, Nancy Pelosi's uh, shutdown of Congress uh, because of this uh, perceived threat emanating from the Twitter sphere? Well, if we, we learn our history, we recognize that fear is always used by those who want to control others. Uh, and we live in a country that's based on faith. We always have been. We dream. We uh, take risks. I mean, we're the country of entrepreneurs. We, we get up every single day and, and figure out if we want to achieve something, we have the failure, the right to try and to fail. These guys are, it's an amazing process to see what's going on. And I tell you, Dan, I think the, the upside is very simple this. We've been talking about uh, the hard left for a long, long time. Many of us have been talking about the threat of socialism, Marxism. It's not taught in schools nowadays. Oh, by the way, there's a remarkable book written back in 1958 called The Naked Communist. If you want to see what's going on today, you want to see the, the tactics that's happening today, that's a great, great read. But at the end of the day, um, we now see firsthand and in, in, in remarkable contrast exactly what it looks like. You're right. We have this remarkable big wall with a razor wire as if the American people are going to come and, and, and climb a wall and attack the Capitol. Meanwhile, we have thousands and thousands every single day coming across our border. That is uh, not protected. COVID is coming through. Human trafficking is coming through. Drugs are coming through. In that process, we're being, uh, I mean, there's so many Americans will be hurt and harmed by that process, and, and we're not addressing it. So I think this is going to be a good chance for us to talk, Republicans and Democrats and independents, those who love our nation, really for the first time in a while, to really talk about what we the people can do to make sure we move forward, because none of us like to, to, to go through this process we're going through right now that's, uh, that's been put on, on to us by the Democrats. Uh, who, who's in charge of the federal government at present? Because, and I ask that question because um, Biden hasn't had an unscripted moment since he was inaugurated. And uh, I think there are legitimate questions about just exactly who is running the show in D.C. at present. 
we, we all have to be concerned about that. And you're right. Many of us knew this going in the process, going into the election period, that he's just not there. And so it's something that happens to people when, 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 as we get old. But in the past, we've been able to vet uh, our electives. Those we elect, so we make sure those kind of folks that they cannot control the process or, or are not elected. But I, I know this. They are moving so far to the left, it makes no sense. The things they're doing right now, uh, there's no wisdom, no understanding of the, of the people. And it's, again, it's caused such a contrast that even those who voted voted for, for President Biden. Let me get your reaction to this. I, I spoke with Victor Davis Hanson yesterday, and his take on this was Biden doesn't care about the midterms. He doesn't care about control of the House and the Senate after 2022. He is going to do everything he can, and those around him, may, who may be the implementers, are going to do everything they can to move as far left as quickly as they can, executive orders like you've seen, because that's how he's going to be recorded in the annals of history. He was the most leftist, they would say, progressive president. He is the one who accomplished all of the dreams from my father that President Obama had. It happened in Joe Obama's third term, Joe Biden's one term, and that's all he cares about. Well, I personally don't think he knows. It's not that he doesn't care. He's just nothing there. What's happening, he's they put papers in front of him, they're telling him what to do, and then he's just following orders. So there's, there's someone making these decisions, and whoever it is, uh, is a very hard leftist, obviously, in my mind. And uh, and they're trying to get as much done as possible because they know that within two years, they will not have the amount of power that they have right now. And I, I want American people to recognize what we're looking at are people, an ideology that cares nothing but about, but about power. They don't care about we the people. They don't care about what's right, what's fair. It's all about power. Again, it's, it's, it's scary in one sense, but in the other sense, I have so much faith in American people. Yeah, I really do. As a student of American history and, and really world history, as you are and you've written about in terms of the threats that uh, poisonous ideologies, socialism and communism pose, even if Republicans took back the House and the Senate in 2022, you still have this whole cultural purge going on manifesting itself in so many different ways in so many different sectors, including, by the way, now um, – reparations actually being moved forward in the West, in Evanston, Illinois, the home of Northwestern University, in Bristol, England, an area that was once represented 250 years ago by Edmund Burke, for goodness sakes. I wonder what you think the greatest threat that's occurring with the cultural purge and, and where people you think would be highest and best, where they could put the highest, best use of their time in terms of pushing back. Again, the biggest part of this is, is us waking up, us knowing that we have a threat. We're now seeing what kind of cancel culture looks like, and it's at some point the American people are going to get very, very sick and tired of this. I think the greatest thing that's coming out of this is recognizing that, that we've been under attack for a long, long time. Uh, these The leftists have been attacking our kids in the educational system, and that's actually what what, uh, what that was defined way back when, when Karl Marx said that the first battlegrounds we're writing in history. They have known that if you change the way our kids think, they can change this intergenerationally. And so now that we know that, I mean, what we'll do when we come back into, uh, into power is be addressing things like what's happening in our college system. If we cannot have a system, a process by which our colleges, our education process is putting out kids that love our country, can compete, we need, to, we need to make some changes there. We need to pull back our funds. from I don't care what, the, what they call themselves. It could be Yale, Harvard, whatever. If they're anti-American and making sure our kids are coming out with, with degrees that do not make do not, do not make a difference with, with debt and, and a haste to our country, we need to make sure that we're addressing that in a big, big way. So what I'm well, so, so, we so how, what, 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 what With respect to colleges, what form would that take? I mean, what, you mean you're going like, to end the student loan program? I and mean, how would you defund the colleges from the federal I, I would level? look at all of the above. I would look at anything that right now is supporting 
uh, the hard left. Anything that's supporting taking our, our kids and, and changing them into uh, citizens of do not love our country, all of the above. We, we have we have uh, Harvard has what forty billion dollars in endowment. Why should we be Why should we be paying into a college system that has forty billion dollars in endowment, remarkably big payments? that these kids are going into debt and not, not addressing it. No, we, we need to now be looking at things that, that we have not in the past to recognize that we're under attack. And that means we have to take a, uh, take a totally fresh view of our educational system to make sure we're uh, coming out with kids that truly uh, appreciate and love our nation and can, and can be great producers for our nation. That's not what's happening right now. So I would say anything that deals with education, by the way, that's, that's the committee I'm on right now, education and labor. And once we get, once we get our, uh, uh, our house back, I'll send it back. We, we'll have enough time then to begin to, to start looking at all these things and controlling the process. As you'll see now, what the left is doing, controlling it, we can do the same thing once the good, good people, the right people in office. Burgess Owens, former NFLer, Super Bowl champion, author of Why I Stand, From Freedom to the Killing Fields of Socialism, and uh, now congressman from Utah's 4th. Burgess Owens, thanks so much for joining us. Can, can, can I say this, Dan? Can I say this, yep. Dan? Yep. The Naked Communist, the Naked Communist, please pick it up. It's Cleon a remarkable good, good read, yep. and you'll see what we're going at it. Yeah, Naked Communist, Cleon Skosen. Uh, thanks so much, Burgess. Appreciate it. Thank you. Jump around. Jump around. Jump around. Jump up, jump up and get down. Get a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. February jobs number is in 379,000 jobs. Uh, that's well well above what uh, ADP had projected on Wednesday of 117,000 and uh, drops the unemployment rate to 6.2%. The uh, bottom 10 when it comes to employment in the country, in other words, the uh, top 10 states and or territories with the highest unemployment rate. See if you can identify something they have in common. The uh, top 10 Unemployment rate, all over 8%. Illinois, Connecticut, Michigan, Nevada, Massachusetts, New Mexico, New York, District of Columbia, California, Hawaii. Every one of them has a Democrat executive. That's right. And uh, unemployment rate, uh, a third higher than the national average. But uh, hey, you don't go change in Illinois. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Scott the Cowguy Shalady. So um, 379,000 jobs. Uh, the recovery is in full swing. Texas and Mississippi are open for business, and uh, all is right with America. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a great number. It's double the expectation. To your point earlier about those states that have the worst unemployment, they do that because they know they'll get rewarded in the new COVID relief bill. Uh, it's good. But we need to do that every year for the next uh, for two years, every month for the next two years to get back to where we were pre-pandemic. So we still have some work to do and not to be a Debbie Downer. And it's really got nothing to do with any stimulus or surplus. It's all got everything to do with reopening because most of the jobs that came back were leisure and hospitality. And again, that's that's fantastic because they got so slammed earlier in the year. So it's a great place to start. It's just what's going to happen after we kind of get through all this and how does this world look on the other side when we wake up from the hangover of the reopening. What about what Jay Powell had to say yesterday, particularly about inflation? Are we uh, letting our... Um... Uh, modern monetary theorists uh, turn a recovery that was supposed to be good for markets into a market correction? Uh, we have to be very, very careful. I mean, 
I'm not an inflation hawk. You know, I don't look for I mean, it's not been something I've really worried about. Even in 08, when we had zero percent interest rates, that was something that everybody was expecting. That's never really happened. And there's been any number of reasons why we don't see inflation happen like we've been told it will. But boy, oh boy, you know, with the amount of money that we're throwing at this issue at the same time that we're recovering. Look, we're going to have this grand reflation trade, grand reopen reflation trade, right? And everybody's going to get, you know, euphoric about being able to come out of your houses finally because you've accepted communism. You're going to, <laughs> yeah, right. And then you're going to have this economy where it's going to be the I deserve it economy, right? Let's go on that cruise. I deserve it. Let's go on a holiday. I deserve it. Let's go buy that new house. I deserve it. But let me tell you, when it's all said and done and we come down on the other side of this thing, what does this world look like? And that's what I'm trying to figure out because we're going to be face to face with the Biden administration and maybe we're going to have 40% you know, tax on capital gains. Maybe we're going to have 35% tax on corporations. Maybe we're going to have 2% or 4% you know, wealth destruction tax on people that earn over 50 million. There's going to be a lot of issues on the other side of this bowling ball that's going to work its way through this boa constrictor, right? Well, sp- speaking, just- of, speaking of the housing piece, you're going to go buy a new house, a mortgage rate, uh, 30-year mortgage rate, top 3% for the first time since last July. Right, and that's going to be a psychological thing. And for some reason, we've all been really accustomed to the fact that, say, the 30-year at 3% or the 10-year, which everybody's watching right now, at 1.6%, um, is now high. Let's face it. I mean, these are still incredibly low. And I'll tell you, I, I do like Warren Buffett, and he's not a, you know, he doesn't really think that this is going to be here to stay. We might have, I mean, he's looking at you know, these bonds. With, we, we set a world record well, six weeks ago, $18 trillion in negatively priced government debt around the globe. So there still are issues out there. Uh, we're just going through a little bit of a, you know, the roaring 20s right now. But we'll, we'll see how long it's going to last. And that's my worry. I, you know, we can't grow at 8% every year. And the, the calls of 5 to 10% GDP are what we're talking about here. So let's be happy, but keep your feet on the ground because we've got a battle on the other side of that bowling ball as it goes through that thing. What I think is going to be interesting about this whole thing is this. Uh, last September or whenever it was, Nancy Pelosi had the opportunity to say yes to $2.2 trillion, whatever it was. And she played politics with the whole thing. Now she's got the world's biggest job to try to convince Congress that the world's, our economy is so bad that we need a $1.9 trillion stimulus. It really doesn't have anything to do with COVID because everything's so bad and we get numbers like this thrown in her face. I can't wait to watch her try to justify $1.9 trillion in the face of the numbers that we're starting to see right now. That's going to be the interesting thing over the next, say, probably three weeks. Well, one of the ways that she can justify it is by talking about the amount of debt that's been accumulated at the lower end of the socioeconomic uh, scale. People who are in arrears on rent and utility payments and moratorium on their mortgage, credit cards, other loans. Um, Because remember, the 10 million jobs, we're talking about people that are in the lower three quintiles of the of the socioeconomic distribution and in in terms of household income. And so you could make a class envy play you inflicted all this damage down market in terms of household income and now we're going to pay to make these people whole well i mean if you're going to shut down the economy you, and you take that choice you that's the choice you've made as a government right you're going to have to because you take away the, the people's right to work I, I i'm totally against it at the time i still am that's something that you have to build in to what you've done but to keep it done keep it locked down as long as we have and continue with the draconian measures that we still see happening today. And when you've got 16 states that have you know, got rid of the mask mandate, but still we've got the head of our medicine talking about wearing two masks. I mean, what's this world coming to? You know, I right, do but, feel but, safer. 
But, but Scott, but, but my, my point is to say this, though. You know, we're looking at all the money that's sloshing around and household incomes bumping up and savings rates bumping up. But is, is that being pulled up by the upper quintile where what we're not seeing and we're not talking about because these people don't have clout is the 50,000 and under household income. And even if they're being propped up with by transfer payments right now, they're also you know, in hiatus for paying bills and they're not, they don't have the wherewithal to make up six months of mortgage payments in one payment and so on and so forth. And this is right. sort of what we're not seeing and what we're not talking about in terms of all this money that's supposed to be stimulative. In point of fact, most of it is going to go to pay for the sins that were committed by the politicians and inflicted upon those at the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder. Exactly right. And to, to your point, I mean, the issue is, Nobody is talking about that sector because I've been writing about this for a while now. You've got the canyons of New York and Chicago, those buildings. I, I, I'm going to go down there today in about an hour to do a fox hit. There's nobody in the buildings, Dan. There, there's nobody there. there. I mean, let's just say they're 10% occupied. I've been doing this now for a year, and I haven't ridden the elevator with anybody else except for twice. And I go down three times a week. So those people, are, are we haven't even begun to take stock in the fact that all those buildings are empty. That means there's no customers down there anymore. For those four or five shops that are on the concourse level of every big building, I mean, we, we, we have not begun to even, these are, we're talking about leisure and hospitality. What about the guy, the dry cleaner and the key cutter? I mean, these people are gone forever. And all the restaurants that have been still gone forever. We, I, I still think there's a great reckoning. And then that's why you've got these people talking about going back in 2023 because you've got so many big CEOs. My brother-in-law works for a massive company. They have two floors of the Sears Tower in Chicago. They don't know when they're going to go back. Still, so I think that's going to be a mistake because you know so much so much work gets done collaboratively. Still, I, I, you know, face to face is always going to be better than Zoom. I don't care what you say, but we're not going to be 100% Zoom. That we'll, we'll 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 come back from that. But the point is this. We're not bringing the customers back to those big cities like we thought we were going to. People are now, you know, there has been a behavioral change. And so that lower that lower level of income, you know, the guy that was actually delivering uh, lettuce to the restaurant, right? We don't talk about that guy because he can't work from home, right? Those people are the ones that we still have not really taken stock in. And I, I agree with you, Dan. I mean, that's the biggest transfer of wealth in 100 years. He has got the cow guy, Shalady, Fox Business contributor. Catch him on Fox, as you said, uh, in short order. Scott, thanks as always. Appreciate it. All right. Have a good weekend. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. The old saying goes, uh, sell to the masses, live with the classes, right? Uh, the Sam Walton and Walmart experience, for example. And that may be true, but uh, the converse isn't necessarily sell to the classes and live with the masses. No, the Mercedes dealership owner lives with the classes, too. And do we see this happening now in corporate culture, particularly Fortune 1000 companies more generally? that they're happy to eschew the masses in order to live or at least be accepted and sanctioned by the champagne socialists who drive behavior and control the institutions that have particular appeal to the classes. 
follow all that? Hopefully Matt Purple did. He is our next guest, and he's uh, written about this in the context of uh, Disney Corp as one prime example. Matt Purple is a senior at the American Conservative, AmericanConservative.com. Matt, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, Dan. How you doing? Good. So and what about that? What about uh, Disney, of all places, um, discarding lower to middle income families and uh, their kids, uh, eliminating them potentially as uh, lifelong consumers of Disney products uh, in order to uh, fall in line with uh, woke think? Yeah, well, my, my conservatism used to focus primarily on government and limiting government, making sure that it can't intrude too far into our lives. And as it happens, I think that's still a worthwhile endeavor and something we ought to focus a lot on. Uh, but what you're noticing as we progress here, supposedly, is that big corporations are falling to this woke ideology, right? In other words, the wokesters have discovered that there isn't – you don't necessarily need to pass a law to shut somebody up or to have your way. You only need to capture the right corporate gatekeepers, a company like Disney, for example, or like as we just uh, experienced, the, the company that publishes Dr. Seuss as well. Um, and in terms of Disney, what you're seeing is – uh, they are firing people like Gina Carano over sharing an allegedly offensive uh, meme online. Um, you know, they, they're, they're going woke, basically. They're kind of embracing that ideology. They're shutting down Splash Mountain at their Magic Kingdom property because they deemed it to be, it is based on an offensive movie, but the, the ride itself wasn't offensive. Nevertheless, there's activists complaining about it, so they have to, they, it, it has to go. Uh, they're, they're being cowed by these people. They're bowing before these people. Uh, the activists know exactly what they're doing, and, and they've gotten to them. And it's particularly hypocritical in Disney's case because uh, all their theme parks, pardon me, not all their theme parks, but their Disney World theme parks are all down in Orlando, uh, which is the poorest or it has the lowest wages of any metropolitan area in the country. Uh, so they claim to be in favor of the disenfranchised and the marginalized, uh, but they don't actually pay their workers very well, which is interesting to note. Well, it, but here's the thing. They're obviously making a calculation that uh, this will not uh, impact our bottom line or negatively impact it such that um, we can't afford to uh, to fall in line. Yeah, they are. And, you know, this takes us into the Dr. Seuss story as well. We all learned last night that eBay is no longer going to carry any of the titles that the estate recently decided to stop publishing. Uh, you know, titles like If I Ran the Zoo and, and Mulberry Street. And um, it, it just gets back to this idea that, you know, if you can pressure the right companies, then you can prevent ideas from even getting out there at all, from even disseminating in, in the first place. And I, I think that we need to stand up for this because this has a very big impact on our culture. And it isn't just going to stop... I'm sorry, go ahead, Dan. But, but how, how do you do that? Because if it's untrue that you go woke and you go broke, and there's no evidence to really suggest it is true at this juncture, I mean, it could change, uh, but that's not true right now, then, then how, how do you do that? Particularly conservatives, you know, we're not so interested in the organized boycott like the left is. Yeah, and maybe we need to become more interested in it. And I really, I've resisted this for a long time. I hate this idea that every time a company does something you, do, you don't like, then therefore you have to, you know, get away from it. I think right. that, that just balkanizes us even further. Uh, but it's getting to a point where, where culture is being erased, culture is being wiped out, and where just the overall cultural climate is becoming very hostile, not just to what we believe, but to our ideas even being out there. And I think you have to find a way, this is only going to stop, when these big corporations decide that the economic pain that's caused by surrendering to the woke people is greater than by not surrendering. And I don't I haven't quite figured out what that looks like yet. I'm not sure anybody quite knows what it looks like yet. I think that 
Uh, Trump tried to impose some of that pain by calling these people out on Twitter. Uh, maybe it worked, maybe it didn't. It doesn't seem like it did. But uh, th- there needs to be an ongoing discussion about this going forward because uh, this is where it's headed, and, and I see no reason why it would stop. Well, maybe they'll be undone by their own internal contradictions. And I want to pick up our discussion there with uh, an example that uh, relates to Disney in part. More with Matt Purple from the American Conservative, theamericanconservative.com, right after this. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Matt Purple, who's senior editor at the American Conservative, theamericanconservative.com, talking about uh, woke culture and the, uh, you know, the, the totalitarian identitarians. And what does it look like to push back against uh, what Disney or the NBA or other major institutions uh, in the private sector, big corporations, wealthy individuals, high profile status? What does it look like? And the question maybe, Matt, is... Um, uh, rather than say we need to be more focused on things that we're loath to do as conservatives, like uh, boycotting a company every time they make a decision you don't like, as you were saying before the break. Maybe we just sit back and say, ultimately, uh, we should do what we should focus on what uh, we like to do and let the internal contradictions of the other side uh, have their way. Sort of thinking about this uh, in a Cold War sense, the internal contradictions of the Soviet Union, ultimately, it's undoing. And the internal contradictions of the identitarian ideology could ultimately be its own doing. For example, uh, this week, the uh, Chinese communists, accord in communist China, ruled that homosexuality could be classified as a mental disorder. Well, how uh, NBA, how Disney, are you going to uh, remain servile to Chinese communists for access to their market when they're promoting ideas that run counter to your ideology. Maybe it's just holding them to what they're putting forward rather than trying to argue from a place of principle about uh, free thinking in a free society. Yeah, or, you know, committing genocide against the Uyghurs, as everybody except the Biden administration thinks they're doing. Certainly there's a contradiction to be had there, and the left has gotten annoyed about China in the past, too. So there's certainly an internal contradiction, like you said. I think the bigger internal contradiction If you ban something and if you stigmatize something, eventually you're going to make it fun to say. Eventually, because everybody likes to break taboos, right? Everybody likes to rebel against the man and to revolt. And at some point, you know, people like comedians, for example, who depend on crossing lines for their business, they're starting to realize now that most of those lines are being drawn by the left rather than the right. Eventually, like people are going to, to, I just think, rise up against this because it demands so much. It puts so many restrictions on discourse and on critical thought. It basically says you have to believe what they believe or else that you can't sustain that, you know, given what a diverse and various country we are. People inevitably arrive at different conclusions. Sorry to interrupt, but do you worry about 
the ability of the the combine of the big tech and big corporate America combined with big government effectively silencing uh, those who would cross said lines. I mean, if, if you get uh, eliminated on social media, if you get eliminated in the digital space, you're largely eliminated from the discourse. You are. I mean, there's other ways you can get your voice out there. You can start a blog or something, although maybe soon those will be clamping down, too. I don't know. I certainly agree that they can make it very difficult in the short to medium term. Right. Even if this does go the way of the Soviet Union and it collapses, it can be it can cause a lot of censorship and a lot of pain in the in the meantime. And, you know, the question is what we do about that. I haven't quite worked my way to an answer for that, but I will Mm -hmm. tell you this much. Disney might be a good place to start because Disney used to be a very conservative company because they understood that they're their customers were mostly middle class, right? That they were appealing really to broad middle class America, families with children and so on. Uh, They've moved away from that. They've started pandering to the upper classes more. Uh, But they're still, relatively speaking, this is a new identity for them. It may be worth it to say, okay, well, if you really want to make that transition, then go ahead. Uh, But we're going to take our money elsewhere. We're not going to go to your theme parks. We're not going to buy your your movies. We're going to try something else and, and see what kind of effect that has. I don't, again, I don't know, but I think Disney would be particularly vulnerable to that. What about, um, you know, these corporations and, and the C-suite executives that are the decision makers being pushed into positions they really don't want to take but are, are effectively having to take in order to keep the barbarians at the gate, the sentimental variety of barbarians? Um, and so maybe it's with respect to a particular film or a particular artist. But then maybe it becomes things like uh, you got to sign on to reparations. Uh, you have to sign on to banning gas stations in California. You know, you have to sign on to things that it, 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 that increasingly puts you in a precarious position, both financial, particularly financially in terms of the viability of your enterprise. Yeah, I think so. And that's going to be weighed against the financial viability of a lot of young people, a lot of young consumers in that target demo who are coming up do believe in this wokeness, which is why these companies are particularly susceptible to that, because everybody likes a young customer, a young client base. So that's kind of the mitigating force in the other direction. But, you know, I I also just think, too, eventually the sheer volume of demands are going to become impossible to meet. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, these people, they take the Dr. Seuss canceling, for example. Some of these books, like Scrambled Egg Super, are difficult to find. It's not like the Lorax where you can just go to the library and it's readily available. Some of these titles haven't really been circulated all that heavily, yet they still went out, they still found them, they still found the insensitive depictions, they still demanded that they were canceled, and and they got their wish. And, you know, for people who are willing to just go to their utmost to find things that offend them, to, to find reasons, new reasons to be offended, there's no stopping that process. It's just going to snowball and snowball. And, you know, hopefully at some point it just becomes too much for corporate America and they, they you know, make a decision to stop cowing to these people. Do, do you worry that um, they're uh, sort of prompting uh, peaceful, pluralist, freedom-loving people into fights that they want uh, us to take up as opposed to the fights we should be taking up? I mean, uh, we take up Dr. Seuss and very few people take any notice of Shakespeare being uh, exiled from humanities departments and colleges across the country over the last several years, or or we're taking up this area of censorship when we should be focused on something bigger and more important. Absolutely, yeah. And and the most common critique that I'm getting on a a piece that I just wrote about Dr. Seuss is, why do you care about this? You know, this is such small ball. I think it matters because most people have heard of Dr. Seuss and and can Mm -hmm. tell you about Dr. Seuss, where Shakespeare is a little bit more of an elite commodity, so it's a good fight to have. Another uh, indictment but, but of K-12 through education, by the way, that, that what you just said. 
completely. And this was done at the uh, behest, in some cases, of librarians and teachers who ought to be the first people standing up for free speech and free expression. Um, it's unbelievable. But, you know, I, I also just think, too, that um, if you are going to go in, in this direction, then, then yeah, I mean, at, at some point, at some case, at some point, rather, I think it just becomes too much. And I, I think so, too. You know, I would much rather be talking about the Joe Biden 1.9 trillion dollar spending package that's about to go through Congress that contains a lot of junk. I'd rather be talking about H.R. 1, that Voting Rights Act. I'd rather be talking about there's a lot of big legislation moving right now, and it can seem a little piddling that we're talking about Dr. Seuss. But at the same time, this cultural stuff really matters. Uh, it, it influences people more than legislation does. And, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to spend the rest of my life talking about cancel culture, but I think it's an important fight to have. Matt Purple, senior editor at TheAmericanConservative.com. Matt, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Listen to podcasts of the show at DanProfShow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, I want to uh, demonstrate some courage, particularly since it's my last show, might as well. Uh, Pastor Stuart Allen Clark of uh, Malden, Mississippi. Uh, he is a pastor of the First General Baptist Church there in Malden, uh, Missouri, excuse me, Malden, Missouri. Pastor of the First, Bap- First General Baptist Church in Malden. Recent uh, sermon, he had some uh, advice, even though he admits, as you'll hear, that he's not in the business of marriage counseling, but he had some advice for... Uh, wives in particular. And uh, as you listen to what he has to say, just imagine being a man sitting ne- next to your wife at the church on that day and just trying to stare ahead <laughs> as your wife is turning to you and probably staring you down while listening to the pastor's sermon. And, and ladies here, here's the thing you need to know about men. Don't give him a reason to be like this distracted boyfriend. Do you hear me? Don't give him a reason to be looking around. Hello? So, okay, why is it so many times that women, after they get married, let themselves go? Why do they do that? Now, look, Cric- I'm not saying every chirping. woman can be the epic, the epic trophy wife of all time, like Melania Trump. I'm not saying that at all. Now, most women can't be trophy wives, but, you, you know, like her, maybe you're maybe a participation trophy. I don't know. But all I can say is, not everybody looks like that. Amen. Not everybody looks like that. But, but you don't need to look like a butch either. But you say, how can I do that? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. I'm so glad you asked that question because you're in my office, you and your husband, and we're talking about your marriage, and uh, you've asked me this question about what can I do about that. All right, if you were sitting in my office, here's the first thing I'd say to you. And boy, I hate to say that. This is why I don't do marital counseling anymore. And that is weight control. So how important is this? Let me tell you something. I have a friend. He has put a divorce weight on his wife. That's how important this is. Mm. You know, makeup. Makeup is, is a good thing. You know, one little boy said to another boy, why, why do girls wear makeup and perfume? He said, because uh, they, they're ugly and they stink. You don't want to be ugly and stink. Scientists have discovered, by the way, a food that diminishes a woman's sex drive. It's called wedding cake. <laughs> 
Ooh, you may want to have run that by uh, the little misses uh, before offering that to the congregation. Uh, needless to say, phrases like a participation medal wife or participation trophy wife and uh, uh, including a divorce weight in the uh, marital contract did not go over well in all quarters, including among the General Association of General Baptists, since this was a General Baptist church, they uh, issuing a statement uh, saying that uh, he was scheduled to moderate a session of that General Association in July of next year. He's resigned from that position, and they uh, quickly distanced themselves from Pastor Clark just as quickly as they, uh, just as, as readily as they could. General Baptists believe that every woman was created in the image of God, and they should be valued for that reason. Furthermore, we believe that all individuals, regardless of any other factors, are so loved by God that Christ died for them bailing water on behalf of the good pastor, by the way, as I'm sure many women will note if they go online to watch this rather than just listen to it. Um, perhaps pastor is not in any position to be commenting on the physical attributes of the uh, distaff side. This is Dan Proff. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Please follow us at danproftshow.com and on social media at danproftshow. Thinking a little bit more about uh, Governor Nipplestud's and uh, the way... He was described by Charlotte Bennett, we talked about uh, before the top of the hour. It it's, reminds me of the study that was done last year at, uh, by researchers at University of British Columbia with respect to the dark triad personalities, those who have a combination of Machiavellian, narcissistic, and psychopathic tendencies, the dark triad characteristics. Uh, and it strikes me that um, thinking about... Uh, Hansi Anzi Cuomo's two attempts at an apology. That's what we have at play there. Remember, those dark triad personality traits are more likely to manifest themselves in the virtuous victim. And isn't that what Cuomo is doing when he does the, I never inappropriately touched anybody. Uh, if you, uh, if I made you feel awkward, it certainly wasn't my intent. I was completely ignorant. I apologize if you felt awkward. I apologize if you misinterpreted, if you thought not what I did. If anybody was offended by it, and I could intend no offense, but if they were offended by it, then it was wrong. See, he, that's the virtuous victim. Right. I'm a victim, but I tell you what, I'm going to own it because I'm virtuous. You know, like he told his brother Fredo, hey, I just do what's right. That's just what I do. I assume if and when he ever offers a statement about the nursing home scandal, the uh, order that he gave, the consequences it wrought, the cover up that followed, he will also say I never inappropriately touched any report because uh, we have a Wall Street Journal story that broke last night. That finds uh, more evidence that uh, Cuomo's top advisors successfully pushed state health officials to strip a public report of data showing that more nursing home residents had died of COVID-19 than the administration had acknowledged. And uh, let's bring our next guest for more on this topic, because he suggests that there's something else going on here, particularly when it uh, as it relates to the uh, press corps coverage of Cuomo's implosion. 
Uh, pleased to be joined again by John Nolte, who is uh, editor-at-large, Breitbart.com. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Morning. So um, the, um, the particular angle you take uh, is that um, Cuomo is the fall guy for other governors, other Dem socialist governors that the press corps don't want to see fall. Yeah, he's the symbol of the nursing home scandal. I mean, the Democrat Party is so insane that they close schools where no one's at risk and they pour coronavirus into nursing homes where everyone's at risk. Mm. And right now, Como is the face of that scandal. The problem for the media, and it's a real scandal, is that there are four other Democrat governors that did the exact same thing. The governor of Pennsylvania and Michigan and New Jersey among them. There's one more, oh, Newsom in California. So you've got New Jersey, California, Michigan, in Pennsylvania, four Democrat governors who are up for re-election, one's in a tough, in a tough recall fight. And if, if the media takes the nursing home scandal and reports on that accurately and reports on that responsibly, Como's going to go down because he not only lied about that scandal, he not only told the public that it wasn't his fault that that happened, it was a directive from Trump's D.C., which was a lie, he also covered it up. He covered up documents, and that might actually be a crime. So if the media go after him for that, they're going to have to go after these other four Democrat governors, uh, two of whom are in important swing states. And that's and having a governor in office in your party helps a lot if you want to win that state during the presidential election. Right. Tom Wolf in Pennsylvania and uh, the Eva Perona of East Lansing, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan. Right. Those right. are the two swing states. And then you mentioned Newsom and Murphy in New Jersey. Um, also, though, too, because um, we've talked a bit about this. Uh, it, initially, last year, the reporting was that orders like this were also given by Charlie Baker, the Republican governor of Massachusetts. And uh, in our home state of Illinois, there's real question because we can't seem to get a straight answer. And there's now a look-see going on into whether Governor Pritzker in Illinois did the same. Yeah. So and, and it, all of it, it's, it's just unfathomable that we would close schools where no one's at risk and pour, these, and pour the virus into, into nursing homes. It's, it's sociopathic behavior. So they've got, they've got Como as the face of this. So what do they do to appease and distract. They make an issue out of three sexual harassment claims. And I'm not saying that Como behaved in a way that's appropriate, but let's face it. All he did was he's a he's 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 single. You know, he's obviously on the make. He didn't behave in the correct way. But I mean, why are we talking more about him offending three left-wing women with a, with an aggressive come on that certainly shouldn't result in him being uh, kicked out of office. Why are we talking about that instead of about 15,000 dead seniors? And it's because the media... Uh, I wanted to get your reaction, too, to uh, Tony Fauci's pronouncement uh, the other day that uh, we uh, may not be back to pre-pandemic normal by March of next year. Now, it's rather interesting because it seems the closer we get to herd immunity, and you had Dr. Marty Macri from Johns Hopkins projecting it could be as soon as April... The closer we get to herd immunity, the farther away in time we get to normal, according to Tony Fauci, before all of these vaccines were coming online, certainly um, more recently, and before we were at you know most states being 70, 80, 90 percent of vaccines deployed. 
before we were having medical professionals projecting herd immunity by April, he was saying maybe fall. Then he said maybe winter. Now he's saying not not even by next spring. How do you explain that? Well, Fauci's always been a liar. I mean, he told us we didn't. <laughs> that, that explains it. And he told us we did. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it's, he's always lied to us. And, it, and then he told us, you know, that, that it wouldn't be as bad and then it would be bad. And it's and then his excuse is always, well, I don't want to panic anyone. And, you know, now, now yeah, it's just so he's, he's, he has no credibility anymore. And he's a laughing stock. And we're seeing right now that the coronavirus, the infection rate, the hospitalization rate, and the death rate is plummeting. And it sounds like we're, and I say this cautiously, but it's still pretty cold out there. It sounds like we're entering herd immunity. And we might be doing it for the reason that that guy in the Wall Street Journal said from John Hopkins. One, we have a vaccine out there. We're getting a million people a day vaccinated. And two, I think a lot of people have this and don't know it. They don't know that they, they're already um, uh, they already have the antibodies in them. And the, between those two things, I think we might be achieving herd immunity. But here you have this idiot, Fauci, who's been lying to us, looking in the camera and lying to us for more than a year. And he keeps extending it. But the thing is, and this is another, this is why I think Biden is allowing uh, illegal immigrants with coronavirus into the country. The thing you have to remember about the Democrats is that they love this virus because it gives them extraordinary power. It gave them the power to change the election laws that won the election for Biden. They love locking us down. They love putting us in masks. They're, they're little tyrants, and they love having these powers to micromanage our lives. And Fauci some, doesn't want to let go of that. There's something else, too, that Fauci is emblematic of, and, it's, and it uh, is spread across the political ruling class in both parties which is a concept that goes back to Plato, the noble lie, the noble liar. And Fauci gave the tell to the New York Times when he said, you know, I, I, I said herd immunity at this level versus this level because, you know, I'm, I'm parceling out information in such a way right. that I think the public can handle it. The noble lie. These are our these people are our betters. And so sometimes they can't quite completely level with us because they have to bring us troglodytes along slowly in such a way that we can process their wisdom. And look at and isn't and, and but but look at how the media reacts to Fauci's noble lie and what they would describe as Trump line. In the early days of the pandemic, Trump was trying to reassure us. Isn't that a noble lie? If he was lying, isn't that a noble lie? But they won't give him that benefit of the doubt because Fauci is one of them. And Fauci is going to try and keep us locked down as long as possible. And thank God for federalism. Thank God Trump, another great decision he made, was allowing the states to handle this themselves. Because now Florida, which issued no restrictions, no mandates, including masks or, or the number of people you can have in your business, he let, he let Floridians make their own decision. Florida is proving that these lockdowns were useless because Florida's per capita death rate is, I think, 27th in the entire country. He's doing, Florida's doing much better than states that locked everyone down. And that's, that is very telling. And now that Texas and Mississippi have removed all restrictions, hopefully that's going to start a wave. And the other states are just going to have to because these states are acting on their own. A wave of Neanderthal thinking is what you're talking about. <laughs> Thank God for Neanderthals. He is John Nolte, editor-at-large, Breitbart, Breitbart.com. John, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Have a good weekend, guys. You too.
seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We've had this conversation before, but it's been several weeks. And um, a good report, actually by a CBS Network affiliate in Utah, has uh, prompted me to want to tackle it again. That is just the incidence of adverse reactions, adverse outcomes uh, with respect to vaccinations. And uh, unlike COVID and the coverage of COVID infections in most quarters for the better part of the last year, this is not intended to, or nor will it be, an engagement in, in fear-mongering, not going to overstate the case. Uh, but we are going to suggest some data be examined and provided on a routine basis so that there is transparency with respect to the problems associated with the vaccinations in context, in context. Uh, and uh, so people can have confidence in the choice they make because it's an informed choice. There's understanding and there's the opportunity to interact and discuss this and see uh, medical professionals discuss this openly and honestly, as opposed to fear mongering and diktats from public health professionals behaving like political figures. The, uh, UB, the uh, Utah CBS affiliate uh, reporter Heidi Hatch put together a good report, thought it was very helpful, provides what you rarely get newscasts generally, particularly network affiliate newscasts, which is context and consequence. She uh, interviewed three women who had adverse reactions to one of the vaccines for COVID. One woman who almost died, she coded. And we'll start there with uh, that discussion. And she brings in Dr. Tamara Sheffield, after you hear from the woman who had the adverse reaction. Dr. Tamara Sheffield, who is an infectious disease expert, to address that. Probably three hours later that I was having breathing problems. Carrie was rushed to the hospital, treated for an allergic reaction, and sent home. The next morning, her battle to breathe began again. Very, very scary. I immediately went to the COVID ICU, and they did the swab right away and determined that it wasn't COVID, but, then it was, but that it was a reaction to the shot. Once stabilized, Carrie was moved to another floor. I got up there and uh, coded again, and they brought me back down. Well, all the breathing and wheezing and everything had ruptured my uh, vocal cord. While Carrie's allergic reaction is rare, Dr. Tamara Sheffield, medical director of Intermountain Community Health and Prevention, says there are more allergic reactions to the COVID vaccines than first expected. Anaphylaxis um, is moderately higher. With twice as many documented allergic reactions from the Pfizer vaccine compared to Moderna. And the nice thing is we are giving these vaccines in medical settings where we are able to administer the kind of medications to treat an anaphylaxis. Early indications of allergic reaction created the 15-minute wait rule. Everybody that I've talked to that has received it, I anticipate that they're going to tell me that they have side effects. Rich Lakin, the immunization director for the Utah Department of Health, explains all medications and vaccinations have side effects. Everybody is going to have a different response to a vaccination. Right. That's fair. I, watching this report, I was reminded of the, the line from Seabiscuit, uh, Jeff Bridges, uh, 
talking about Seabiscuit going to race War Admiral, and War Admiral's touted as this perfect horse, and he says, show me something that's perfect, and I'll show you something that's not perfect. And it's okay. As adults, we understand there are not perfect things in this world, that there is nothing without some risk. So just level with people so you can, again, have intelligent conversation about it, come to some, you know, most likely outcome type of basis, and then make your decision and live with it. What's wrong with that? As opposed to the way it's being reported or not reported, that any suggestion that there are adverse reactions or adverse outcomes is marginalized. Now, the reporter here gives some of the Utah stats on adverse reactions and outcomes. And then listen, when she goes back to Dr. Tamara Sheffield, listen to the standard of analysis that Dr. Sheffield applies and think about what standard of analysis was applied in most all of the reporting on COVID over the last year. In Utah, after nearly half a million COVID shots, there have only been 114 reports of side effects to VAERS, including four reported deaths. Is it saying that the vaccine caused the deaths or there were deaths in people who received vaccine? And that's two very different things. It is two very different things. And she's right to make that distinction. The four deaths, for example, in Utah, four people who died having gotten the vaccine or for people who died from having gotten the vaccine, meaning the vaccine was the proximate cause. That's a big difference. Because if you just said, hey, anybody who got the vaccine and died, that's a vaccine death. Well, that would be irresponsible. That would be ridiculous, right? What did we do with COVID? What did we do with COVID? Was it proximate cause only? Or was it anybody who dies with COVID is a COVID death? You see, I just want to make sure we understand the standards we should be applying. Uh, the difference between correlation and causation, the difference between correlation and causation was dismissed when it came to reporting on COVID deaths. It's applicable here with vaccines. It should be applicable. I'm not necessarily criticizing that Dr. Sheffield. It should be. She made the proper distinction. The question is, why wasn't it applied to COVID deaths such that you got more reasonable a more reasonable understanding of the actual threat as opposed to half a million people are dead from COVID and you get a misunderstanding of the, the, the threat of lethality that is present with the infection, don't you? Which is why, actually, according to survey research, you find that the American people think about 10% of people die from the, the who have been infected die when it's more like one-tenth of a percent, 100x less than people think. Uh, the uh, national stats, and I want to get to uh, the national stats that are reported here, as well as what you just heard, that acronym VAERS, uh, right after you hear. Nationally, there have been 1,381 reports of deaths, tens of thousands of hospitalizations, dozens of miscarriages, heart attacks, and strokes. But even still, experts believe VAERS only captures a small number of reactions. VAERS is a system set up by the CDC 30 years ago. It's the, va the Vaccination Adverse Event Reporting System. But it requires self-reporting by medical professionals treating patients as well as the patients themselves. And you heard the reporter accurately say the experts believe it captures only a small fraction of the adverse events, in part because so few people even know the system exists. And so it's important to just note that. I mean, this doesn't say the vaccines are unsafe, but it's providing context. So, right. So we can say there are these adverse uh, outcomes. 
uh, they're not really properly captured to give you an order of magnitude. And yet, even were they, given that uh, most states are 70, 80, 90 percent plus uh, with respect to the uh, back their the vaccinations for the amount of vaccines they've gotten. In other words, they've been deployed. So you're talking about upwards of 20 percent of the American population that has been vaccinated at this juncture. Yes. Are, are the vaccines largely safe, overwhelmingly safe for most people? Yes, they are. But there's also some pitfalls here, and we should discuss those pitfalls for, because the individuals who may suffer from uh, some of the pitfalls associated with the vaccines are relevant too. every individual is. So let's have as comprehensive a discussion in as transparent a manner as we can. So we have intelligent decision making at the individual level and at the public policy making level. This is Dan Poff. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. This is The Dan Proft Show. I'm reliable, I'm a very good listener, and I'm extremely funny. On the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, two of the uh, leading lights of the left. One, Eric Swalwell, Chai Kam Matahari's boyfriend, and Ted Liu, two Democrat socialist representatives from California, who, uh, again, were both House Impeachment 2.0 managers. So to my point about the leaders of the left, they uh, suggested uh, that uh, Congress... Uh, session being suspended yesterday, and uh, if you may have noticed, the uh, nation's capital being under something akin to martial law, that will persist until Republicans come around to agreeing with them about the 2020 election, because the failure to agree with them is tantamount to incitement to violence. It represents an existential threat to the republic. Don't believe me? Here's Ted Lieu. And the Republican leaders can reduce the risk of further political violence by simply saying one simple, truthful sentence, the election was not stolen. The refusal to do that is why we need more Capitol Police officers, as Russell Henry has recommended, and why National Guard troops are still patrolling our Capitol today. Mm-hmm. Eric Swalwell. It aligns, uh, Andrea, with uh, warnings we've seen before the January 6th attack, uh, post-January 6th. And I have to say, uh, it angers me. Uh, it angers me that... I have colleagues who have stood with some of these groups, who have perpetuated the lies that these groups have told around the election and have done nothing uh, to quell or to condemn these groups. And, and when that's the case, uh, is uh, Eliz- Elizabeth uh, Newman testified from the Homeland, formerly from the Homeland Security Committee to the Homeland Security Committee a couple weeks ago, that when groups are not condemned, uh, they feel emboldened. And the fact that I have colleagues uh, that perpetuate this big lie about the election, that inspires uh, these QAnon folks, and it makes them believe that uh, they have a permissive operating environment, and that makes all of us less safe, and it affects our ability to do our job here. Yeah, it's something. And again, uh, these are the same individuals, uh, a thousand more Capitol Police officers to protect the political class. Meanwhile, these folks want to defund police where you live. No, no police for the hoi polloi outside the beltway. More police for the political ruling class, just in case 
that wasn't clear. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined again by Conrad Black, publisher, financier, member of the British House of Lords. Conrad Black, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Glad to be back with you, Dan. Is uh, not agreeing with Swalwell and Lou on um, what happened in the 2020 election, is that uh, the greatest threat facing uh, our representative republic in America? I think that their attempt to uh, blackmail the country, stifle the truth, and pretend that it was a pristine election is an existential threat to the republic as a free voting society. They are the threat. Part of the threat was the unforgettable spectacle of mysterious midnight drops of hundreds of thousands of votes heavily lopsided in favor of the Democratic presidential candidate with no possibility of verifying the accuracy or integrity of those votes by an exploitation of spuriously conceived amendments to and frequently illegal amendments to the voting procedure undertaken in the name of the of the public health crisis, the pandemic. I mean, the fact is, the Democrats probably stole the election, and in their vehemence at promulgating the theft of the election, they are stating that any failure to admit the absolute honesty of the election constitutes an armed insurrection against the regime that they've set up as, as a practical matter, an undemocratic state governed by them for as long as they want and any way they want. I think it is utterly scandalous and unbelievable. When President Trump spoke last Sunday in Orlando, thankfully, he, he avoided any hyperbole. He didn't claim to have won the popular vote. He didn't win the popular vote. Biden won the popular vote fair and square. But he, it is not at all clear that under the elections system that the United States has, where it isn't the popular vote that wins, it's a, it's a federation, and it is the amalgamation of electoral votes from the various states that, that wins the election. It's the six times in American history before last year, the candidate who was elected did not lead the popular vote. That's the way the system works. It works that way in other countries. It's the way the system works. And and um, uh, you know, if you if you win a lot of states by a narrow margin, and and, and lose a few by a huge margin, uh, it, you know that, that produces right. that result. Uh, and and, uh, and and for these people to game the system, pack stuff the ballot boxes under a fraudulent procedure undertaken in the name of uh, enabling people to vote during a pandemic, and then I mean that's one thing to steal an election, but then to try and suppress any discussion of it and claim that. Anyone who raises a peep of objection is a hooligan trying to overthrow the government by violent means. This this has never happened in the United States before, and it must never happen again. Uh, when we come back, I, I have one more question on this topic, and then I also want to uh, get your take on what a post-Trump Republican Party uh, will look like, or is it even a post-Trump Republican Party? More with Conrad Black, publisher, financier, member of the British House of Lords, right after this. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Conrad Black, publisher, financier, member of the British House of Lords. And Conrad, before the break, we were talking about uh, the uh, uh, accusations by Democrat socialists like Congressman Swalwell and Lou, Nancy Pelosi, that uh, anything other than committing to rinse and repeat that the election was not stolen represents a threat to the republic. 
Um, something else that they've done, too, you were talking about what's unprecedented in American history so, to suggest that anybody who uh, disagrees with that or raises legitimate questions about the administration of the election in particular states last year is somehow, um, uh, you know, an anti-democratic threat to a free society. Something else they've done, though, too. I mean, the state of D.C. right now, I haven't seen, uh, you know, artistic structure like this since uh, Christo's Gates in Central Park. This is all a show in advance of what you were just describing. Yeah, look, I probably owe you and your listeners an apology for haranguing you with my question, but the, right. it is just such an absolute outrage, and it is so inconceivable and unprecedented in in a serious democratic country. Uh, it, anyway, having, we're moving on to, to this new thing, and may I add, it is just doubly annoying uh, coming... Uh, uh, you know, from the, this man Swalwell, the uh, huh. most unsuccessful candidate for presidential nomination in the history of the country, who who uh, who stands up there bold as brass as an impeachment manager when they are accusing the former president of incitements he did not make, of an insurrection he did not wish or even imagine, in order to remove him from an office he did not hold. This most asinine, stupid legislative initiative in the history of the country and this guy has been shagging the socks off a chinese spy and he's on the intelligence committee uh, i mean i you could you couldn't make it up no you uh, cannot no, make it up no greek tragedian would produce a plot so so incredible so absurd but uh, it's not going to work. And as I say, I, I thought that when the president, former president, laid it out last uh, last Sunday, uh, he, he made his case in a way that 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 is the beginning of the collapse of the entire democratic narrative. I mean, you 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 put it out in your uh, preamble to, to to our previous session, and. Um, and it won't fly. I mean, the fact is, half the people realize and believe that that there was something funny about the election. Look, I have to add, if I may, one point. I think part of the problem is the Supreme Court not hearing the Texas Attorney General's case. I mean, here it's it was a direct uh, it was a direct uh, uh, case to the uh, to the Supreme Court because it was one state supported by sixteen other states suing several of the swing states on the grounds of failure to exercise their constitutional responsibility to assure a fair election result. Uh, so it, it wasn't an appeal. It was a state against other states. Uh, therefore, it had to start at the Supreme Court. They had to hear the case, and they didn't. They abdicated, presumably. Now, I, I am, I'm no psychiatrist. I can't uh, mind read, but, but presumably because they were afraid of such a political hot potato. But that's not what the Supreme Court's in business for. They have to hear what they have to hear, and they have no higher duty than to adjudicate uh, presidential elections when called to do it. And 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 they, in abdicating, they essentially abdicated the role of the judiciary as a co-equal branch of government. Uh, I'm not saying how they should have determined that. They should have determined it on the basis of the adduced facts, but they should have heard the case. Uh, when it, when you were you mentioned uh, Trump's speech at CPAC uh, this uh, last Sunday evening, and I wanted to get uh, your review of the roadmap that he laid out effectively. Dan Henninger wrote about this in the Journal too. Uh, much of it uh, was very Reagan-esque, as much of his policy agenda was very Reagan-esque. It just was sort of 
uh, subordinated to you know his personality and rhetorical flourish and tweets and such. But but did he did he lay out a roadmap that would provide if followed would provide Republicans with majorities and and control of the federal government for a generation? Well, I don't know about a generation, but I think uh, I think that party is headed to victory next year, and and I, and I think in twenty twenty four the. Republican nominee, well, I, I mean, assuming his health holds, uh, and he certainly looked pretty robust on, on Sunday. Uh, quite a contrast, I may say, with the incumbent president. But if if, uh, if, if his health is good, uh, he will either be the nominee or the nominee will be somebody approved by him. Uh, there, there was no doubt at the end of that address on Sunday that that it's it's the president's party, the Republicans. I mean, which, these which, people, which do you I, think I it, say, these people had the had the fairy tale that that Trump was just some meteor that came across the sky and he's gone. That's nonsense. The, that party supports him and the right to support him. Which do you think is the more judicious path for Trump uh, as kingmaker and, you know, tapping somebody like Ron DeSantis to carry the mantle forward in 24? Or if he's up for the challenge physically, as you suggest, him doing it himself? I, I think it depends on how he plays his cards in the in the meantime. If, if he continues like he did on Sunday, where he sticks to the facts uh, it doesn't insult his opponents gratuitously, doesn't ramble around in, a, in an undisciplined way in what he says, uh, and, and you know, raises the points he did, you know, the, the southern border, the, some of the excesses of the environmental uh, terrorists, uh, the, you know, how to deal with China and so on, uh, sticks to the issues, deals with them responsibly, and, 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 uh, and acts like a president, and doesn't demean the office by aspiring to it in a way that is uh, that, that is that is worrisome as to whether he'll conduct it in a in a dignified way. <clears throat> then then I, I think he if he wants the job he should go for it. If if he if he and I you know he's been the president he was a good president, but if he says well look uh, this is how I've done it up to now I'm not changing then then I think it would be better to get a, a more unifying candidate. I mean we saw last year. His policies were ratified in the congressional and state elections, but a majority of Americans would take even Biden, who is not a galvanizing figure. He has his likable aspects, but he's not a galvanizing figure. But Trump was just too exhausting for the country. He was in their face every day and all night on Twitter. And, and if, he, if he makes that turn to more, a more statesmanlike and, and calm approach to the, to the office, seeking the office and holding the office, he should do it himself if he wants it. If not, he she should get it all set up and decide who he thinks should be president and, and, and support that person. He is Conrad Black, publisher, financier, member of the British House of Lords. Conrad Black, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, always a pleasure to be with you, Dan. Podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the show. And as I close out uh, this program and my program over the last 14 months, uh, just some parting thoughts. And, you know, I just reflect back on 
how I got into radio in the first place and been in radio now for more than 10 years, two different uh, Chicago stations, and then this little year plus foray into syndication. Uh, and, you know, I, I sort of fell into radio. It was not anything I ever imagined I would do. I was a political hack. I worked in and out of state and local government. I had a public affairs firm for a time. I ran for office in 2010, statewide office, unsuccessfully. I was interested in doing commentary work, policy work, that sort of thing, but never thought I would be a talk show host. And it's just sort of one thing led to the other. I started doing commentaries for a morning show in Chicago, and that led to opportunities to guest host. And then I got thrown together with uh, another guy who I work with at WLS in Chicago, which a lot of people know. We started out on the weekends. We started with just a Saturday program, and then we got Saturdays and Sundays. And then when there was a change in management uh, that was in the offing, we got moved to the midday show during the week. And then we got moved to the morning show during the week. And then I spent uh, four years there at WLS before moving over to AM560, the Salem station in Chicago where I've been for six plus years now. And then, you know, this opportunity presented itself to try to step up in weight class a little bit and do a syndicated show in addition to the morning show. So seven hours of radio a day, that's a lot of radio. I don't know that anybody else in the country does seven hours of radio a day. And it's been fun. And and this was my decision to not do the show anymore. So there's no one I'm blaming here. It just was, it was fun, but I think it's time to try something else, continue to do the morning show in Chicago, but maybe, you know, in this dynamic media environment, maybe there's um, a more effective way to uh, do additional work beyond the morning show. You know, part of it is, as people know, this show is taped and uh, not being able to have that interaction with the audience like I do on the morning show I do in Chicago, which is live, is... Uh, is a drawback. And also too, I mean, I just, I go back to this documentary I saw called Rising Star. It's about this uh, Nashville songwriter and recording artist named Griffin House. One of the things he said in the documentary, you know, all you can do is put out authentic work. You can't control how the world receives you. And I really like that observation. It's sort of the same attitude I guess I take too. This has been fun. I've just taken radio wherever it goes, you know, one door leads to the other and just walk through it and see what happens. And that's sort of what I did with the Dan Prof show. But now it's time to see if there are other doors to walk through and what may lie on the other side of said doors. So again, I appreciate uh, people who tuned in and appreciate the communications I've had with you. I appreciate all the guests and my production team of Justin Kosick and Quinn McCarthy, who are also my production folks with The Morning Show in Chicago on AM560. And uh, hopefully we'll see you around in some other form and some other venue, some other time, continue uh, to develop the relationship we we have uh, built over the last 14 months here. And even though this won't be a show anymore on these airwaves, continue to do what I say at the end of every show. Stay informed. So you can act courageously and we can live freely. Thank you so much for joining us, not just today, but over the last 14 months. And uh, hopefully we'll see you again down the road somewhere. Don't stop believing. This is the Dan Proft Show.